This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Hey everyone, my name is Carisha Martinez, one of the digital advertising whalers here at Whole Whale. And today on the podcast, we have Nicole Hurd, founder and CEO of the College Advising Corps, which focuses on high school students uh, in lower income brackets and aiming at getting them into college. Uh, Nicole, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm quarantined and, uh, and sheltering in place like all the rest of us, but I just got off a Zoom call with um, our Michigan core advisors, mm. and it's always great to see the work continue. Uh, and so we're all still helping to increase opportunity, even though we're doing it in ways that we never dreamed we would. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's really interesting to see how organizations are coping and finding solutions in the land of COVID-19. It's definitely it's definitely a, a different space. I mean, one thing that's interesting is we've got 791 high schools we were serving mm-hmm. with 829 advisors, and now they're all virtual. And so wow. we used to say, like, it's so interesting, you know, how is it different to do advising in rural um, America versus you know, New York City or Los Angeles or Houston or wherever? Uh, the one thing that's been interesting about this uh, crisis is that now we are all advising the same way. So in some mm-hmm. ways, it's actually drawn us closer to each other, and there's more interaction between chapters and um, and more Zoom calling and best practices. There's something about our common uh, mission is now even delivered in more ways that we're all experiencing. And so in some ways, it's been incredibly inspiring to watch everybody A, go virtual, but B, the ties mm-hmm. that have formed as we've done that. So, Yeah, for sure. So yeah, let's jump right in. Uh, before we even talk about COVID and all the chaos that that's causing, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the College Advising Corps, and why you thought it would be an important organization to create. So we don't talk about this enough in our country, but this is even before COVID. We have a crisis around opportunity and really around advice. So if you think about the even the most heroic guidance counselor, the most heroic school counselor, our average caseload in the United States is 500 to 1, which means wow. a counselor is supposed to help a young person think about social and emotional issues. They're supposed to help them with scheduling. They're supposed to help them with academic decisions. They're supposed to help them through those very awkward and stressful teenage years. And they're also helping them apply to college. It's just not going to happen. Financially, it is so complex. Admissions is not easy. If you are a first generation or low income or underrepresented student, which are the populations we're focusing on, um, chances are that uh, you might be intimidated by the process or mom and dad didn't go to college or your counselor might be completely overwhelmed. And so the need came from, and I really see our work as a talent strategy. We've got all these amazing young people uh, who need to hear those four words we all need to hear, which is, I believe in you. And then we need to hold hands and make sure that they realize that potential, realize uh, that talent through through education. Um, and so our model is to take recent college graduates, as I was just saying before, we have 829 of them, most of whom over 80% are first generation low income or underrepresented themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and their job is to hold hands with students and say, if I can do this, you can do this too. Yeah, I love that. As I was saying before we even started recording, I'm an alum of Prepper Prep, which is similar in line with what the College Advising Corps does, which is prepare low income and first gen students for 
independent schools, but also college. And a lot of how they define success is students having more equity in terms of education, having that support, which is even more important as you enter these spaces that are really predominantly white, a lot more upper middle class, and really supporting them through this time as it's a very hard transition to make. So how do you define, what are some metrics of success that you use for your students, whether it's quantitative or qualitative? Well, and look at, I'm a huge fan for prep for prep. And one of the things I love about this space is there's so many great people moving the needle with students, for students and with their families, right? So mm -hmm. I think we define success a couple ways. One is we're looking at, since we normally do our work through high schools, we're very data-driven. I'm a nerd, I'll own it. Um, and so we look <laughs> at baseline and say, you know, what was the college going rate before we got to a school? And then what is it like when we hold hands with the counselors and the administration, the teachers, the students themselves and their families? And when we all hold hands together, can that go up? So we're looking at increases in college matriculation rates at a school level. On an individual level, it's more complex than that, right? I think our country also does not define college well, if I can say it that way. And so mm. we have a lot of families who think college is only someplace with brick walls and ivy on the on the walls and some places mm -hmm. really expensive and some places four years. We think of success as any place that propels a student to a meaningful outcome, right? So if it's a community college, uh, that's a win, uh, as long as it's a program where they will have a meaningful credential at the end of it. So our mm -hmm. issue in this country with community colleges is that a lot of them don't have the graduation rates we want, but some of them mm -hmm. might have really high graduation rates in certain fields. And so our job is to help a student navigate someplace where they'll have a meaningful credential. And the investment they make, uh, whether it's a financial investment, a time investment, thinking about scholarship dollars or tuition dollars or Pell dollars, that there's a good return on investment. That could also be a four-year school. So whether that's, again, a highly selective school, a less selective school, a public school, a private school, we don't care what the governance structure is. We care about what is the outcome for the student at the end and are they going to get that return on investment? Or is that university or that college going to honor the investment that student is making by going there? Right. And then we also think a win is any kind of um, trade credential or something, again, that's going to have meaning in the workforce. So as a program that's in, again, many different contexts, rural, urban, there are some really powerful credentials that aren't actually degrees, but do propel people forward into jobs and lifestyles that give them access to opportunity, access to capital, access to healthcare, access to uh, civic participation, all the things that we want to have for a healthy democracy. Yeah, I love that model. I think oftentimes when you think of sending students to college, it's like you said, it has to be a four-year university, usually private. You go live there. Um, you do all these extracurriculars and whatever. But what a lot of people fail to realize is that these universities are often very expensive and oftentimes don't really give students what they really need or even what they really want. So what I love about your model is that you define success by what the student wants um, and making sure that these students are one, properly supported, which they should be, and two, that they're getting the outcome that they want and really putting success in their hands. Yeah, I think we've made a very conscious decision that this is always about the students, right? We're a very mission-driven organization and it's always about the students. And so even when we are working in the digital space or in the in-school space, it's really about what's best for the students. So we are not a cookie cutter program. So if you went with me, and I wish you all could come with me, we're about to have, uh, we're going into decision day, decision college signing month. Uh, May is the, the month everybody decides where they're gonna go starting uh, May 1st through June 1st. At first it's pushed back a little bit because of COVID. And you know, if you went with me to a school, you would see, again, just this whole kind of patchwork quilt of different schools and different places where they're going 
Um, but if you went to a couple of different schools with me, what you'd find is we don't do the same thing the same way in every school. And that's one of the things I love about this program. It's not about a cookie cutter, we're all gonna fill out a FAFSA on the same day. It's about <laughs> where are our students at? Where are our families at? Where is the community at? And how can we help really partner with the community and lift up students so they can reach their potential? And so we look very different in different places. And that's good. Um, like I said, I don't think we're a one size fits all model because frankly, uh, we've got so much talent in this country and it needs to it needs to grow it needs to breathe it needs to find places to to really kind of plant itself and go from there and that looks different for every student right and that ability to adapt i think is key <laughs> as we enter these really chaotic and scary times um, of covid 19 and especially as students are looking to signed to certain schools or as some students are even applying to schools for maybe fall. Um, it really provides a lot of different challenges that I don't think really anybody <laughs> has seen before or has been prepared for. Um, so in what ways has this pandemic affected your work and even the success that you find with certain with your students in general? So we're really fortunate. We have a board member named Holden Thorpe, who was the chancellor of UNC Chapel Hill, and then he was the provost at WashU, and now he is the editor of Science Magazine. So he's at the American Academy of Sciences in Washington, DC. Mm -hmm. And just on a kind of wake up and something pops into your head whim, uh, I emailed Holden probably the morning of March 10th and just said, Holden, what do you think about the pandemic that seems to be emerging? Um, and what should we do for our advisors in our schools? And he wrote me back immediately and said, pull them all now. Hmm. That felt incredibly awful on March 10th, I will tell you. It felt shocking. Um, and what felt disruptive and shock shocking and awful on March 10th felt prophetic and thoughtful and the right call by March 18th. So uh, the good news is that we have a scientist on our board who believes in science, and we made a science-based decision. And it was hard. We pulled all those advisors out of those 700-plus high schools. Yeah. Now, like I said, I'm happy because they are um, sheltering at home, and it was the right call. We also that weekend, and those of you uh, who do this kind of work will appreciate this, uh, we increased our server size, <laughs> our server space that weekend, uh, because by Monday, we had pivoted all of the advisors to be virtual advisors. So we increased the space. Uh, we have a texting platform that we use uh, that goes off of a, a student tracking system that we developed with a, a group called BrightWeb. Hmm. And we went ahead and we launched uh, everybody on the te texting platform. So by midweek, everybody was up texting. Uh, everybody had virtual access to their students um, through that. We had built a playbook uh, for all the advisors because the good news is we'd already been doing full-time virtual advising through a couple of experimental initiatives. Mm -hmm. So we're part of a College Point initiative with Bloomberg Philanthropies. Uh, we're part of uh, a Class of 2020 initiative with the College Board. And then through an incredibly exciting uh, investment in Texas, we're doing some hybrid advising. And so we had uh, some muscle in the virtual advising space, but those advisors yeah. immediately trained the other advisors, wrote this playbook, uh, a, lot of, a lot of webinars that week, uh, and we got everybody doing virtual advising. So now, is it perfect? No, but back to being nimble, right? Yeah. I think it's always about the students and we have to meet the students where they're at. And right now that means Instagram Live, right? <laughs> now that means uh, Zoom calls. Now that means uh, Google Hangouts. Now that means yeah. all sorts of different places. Um, and what I love about the fact that this work is being delivered by 23 and 24 year olds is they actually know how to use those things. Whereas right. 
I'm still trying to figure out some of that myself. So I'd love to hear more about your texting platform. I think texting really blew up maybe in like 2012 or so, but kind of fell in the wayside as it became more saturated and more organizations have been using it. So I think what happened was, you know, there's been a lot of research in our space. And again, the nerd in me loves the research about <laughs> edges Yeah, uh, and, and text. I think in full transparency, a little skeptical that it was going to be a game changer, mm -hmm. um, but it is where students are at, right? Yeah. So we know if we email a student, that's not the way to get them. Mm -hmm. uh, I have two teenagers myself. They are completely attached to their phones 24 seven. I have actually gone into their rooms at 11 o'clock at night and they've been asleep with a phone in their hands still, right? So I think, <laughs> been there. Um, <laughs> so I think part of the texting piece was really to say, okay, this is where our students are at. A number mm -hmm. of our school districts had already uh, released phone numbers to us as part of our um, data sharing agreement. Some of the schools, uh, we got permission from parents and students to collect phone numbers. So we had a lot of that already kind of built up. Uh, and then when we had this moment, those where we already had numbers and access, we just kind of uh, doubled down on it. And those places where we didn't, we immediately started to do those MOUs, those memorandums of understanding uh, and getting all the compliance and the FERPA and all that stuff right so that we could start reaching students there. The texting is interesting. Part of it is being proactive. So coming up with the right messages to say like, hey, remember deposits are due. And if you like a lot of low income students or a lot of students whose parents have lost their jobs recently um, are having a problem with this, then you know, you can waive a deposit. So, you know, mm. text me back and I'll show you how to ask a university to waive a deposit. Mm. Um, so some of it is proactive texting and some of it's reactive texting. Yeah. But I think the the idea is if we're all sheltering at home, where can you find a student right now? And a lot of them is it's through their phone. Yeah, I love that. I wish I could have those kind of text messages just for life. <laughs> but I love that to really meet students where they are, like texting your friend back. Exactly. And, and you know, the best part is because we had pre-existing relationships um, with those students, it feels like um, it's not just a random text, right? It's coming from their, their college advice, core advisor. It's just coming now as a text as opposed to um, in person. We also uh, announced, again, this is about moving quickly. We announced last week a partnership with Common App. So Common mm. App had identified about 200,000 students who had applied to college. Uh, so they're seniors and they are first generation because that's one of the things the Common App screens for. And they're low income because we know they, uh, they identified as needing a fee waiver. And so those 200,000 students got an email from the Common App last week then another great um, organization, EmitHub, is doing the AI, and they've got a bot that's doing the first round of texting. Um, and then our advisors, because they have a little bit more capacity now that they're not in schools, have signed up to answer those texts if the bot can't handle it, and do some wraparound services around group um, webinars and one-on-one -on -one conversations to help those students get to the finish line over the next two months. Because, and look, I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but just to be really real for a second, if we do not lean into the senior class, the class of 2020 could be the least diverse class to go to college mm. in a decade. Um, and all of the things that we have been pushing for, for more diversity and equity and inclusion was already fragile and yeah. we don't want to lose it. Um, and frankly, I'm not just worried about the class of 2020, I'm worried about the class of 2021. So we're going to have to think about what technology, uh, what advising, what ways can we kind of wrap our arms around the class of 2021 so those students also don't lose the opportunities they've earned. Definitely. And I think even thinking ahead into the future is really keen. My brother and my cousin are class of 2021, and it just seems like they're not 
this pandemic has taken over their entire minds. Now is the time to start creating your lists, scheduling visits, but it's just, it's not happening. It's so disruptive. And look, I have um, both what I do uh, for my vocation or my passion <laughs> in life and my children are both in the same space, right? Yeah. So I have a senior in high school and I have a junior in high school. Mm. Uh, and the senior is mourning like a lot of students are, yeah. not having a prom, not having a graduation, not having some of those milestones and a little concerned about she's going to the University of Virginia in the fall. Like, is that going to be online? Is that going to mm -hmm. be in person? What's it going to look like? And I think a lot of students are going through that. You know, I had a phone call with advisors this morning where they were talking about a lot of students are thinking about, do I really want to go away now? Do I mm -hmm. want to go close home now? Do I want to go, if it's going to be online, do I want to go to community college because it'll be less expensive? I think right. there's a lot of disruption in, in for our seniors. And that's why we did this partnership with Common App and Admit Hub. And then I've got a son right behind my daughter who is a junior and he's same thing, right? Uh, SATs were canceled. ACTs were canceled. How are they going to judge me if I don't have a score? My classes might be past fail. How's an admissions officer going to read that? Right. Uh, taking my college tours virtually. What does that feel like? So yeah. again, I think there's a ton of disruption in the space. And if you care about, like I said, diversity and equity and inclusion, uh, we've got to make sure we lean in and not let students really lose opportunities that, that they've earned um, and, and bypass what should be a really important milestone and a really important launch pad uh, for their lives. And it's time to feed the whales with a quick ad about Whole Whale University. This is our best online content packaged in courses. We're talking SEO, content marketing, Google ad grants, cybersecurity, and tons of webinars and other templates for you to use. You can buy them individually or as an annual subscription. Uh, we really put our best work in here. And if you're interested in the topics in this podcast that we tend to cover, we go a mile deep with these courses. That's wholewhale.com slash university. I also want to lean in more into that topic of diversity and inclusion. And you mentioned earlier that if we don't try and find out some solutions now, these next few classes are going to be not very diverse whatsoever, simply because of access to resources. If you are a student who doesn't have reliable access to internet or doesn't have a laptop at home or any of these things that are taken for granted in a way in an age of technology, it's really hard for you to be on the same page and even on the same step as those who do. So are there any ways that the College Advising Corps is taking into account these things about internet, laptops, just access in general? Yeah, I mean, this is why I love the advisors so much. So I've been doing, and we have a, a board member, Debbie Diggs, who I just adore, who's been doing these Zoom calls with me. So we've mm. been talking to all 30 <laughs> chapters over the last uh, three days. Like I said, the two of us just got off a call with Michigan. And one of the questions that I've been asking them, I also have a CEO advisory council of seven right. advisors. I meet with every Thursday uh, on a weekly basis. And one of the questions I think we're asking them is, what are you seeing and what can we do to help, right? Mm. And so to your point, what are we seeing is we're seeing lack of uh, access. So Wi-Fi, hotspots, the whole thing. And it's not just our rural advisors. Mm. It's our advisors in New York City. Yeah. So like for a second, let's get real. Just because you live in a city doesn't mean you have access to Wi-Fi yeah. um, hotspots. So, you know, I think we're trying to work with some different partners there. But I do think on a, a city slash county slash federal level, we need to have a conversation <laughs> about uh, access because we don't have enough Wi-Fi um, and hotspot. It, we, I can't believe how not connected we are in a world where everybody thought we were pretty connected. Yeah. Uh, so that's one area. I think the other area to your point is, I think we've rushed and the advisors have definitely amplified this. I think we've rushed too quickly to say like, oh, we're doing online education and it's quote unquote working. Mm. Um, 
you know, I've heard a lot of universities say like, we're ready for the, you know, students in the fall. The question isn't, are these universities going to be ready with their platforms or their faculty members? The question is, are the students going to be ready to receive instruction that way? And the yeah. answer is no. Right. So the reality is we have high school students and college students right now. And again, I don't mean to be grim, but this is real, mm-hmm. who are learning in bathrooms, who are learning in closets, who share a you know, space with two or three siblings and parents. And there's no quiet place to learn. There's no quiet place to write. There's no mm-hmm. quiet place to do schoolwork. But that's where they are right now, and that's what they have to do. And so, again, I think we're taking for granted that uh, everybody has access to a place to do work uh, when most people don't. Um, And we need to be cognizant of that. I think the other part that's scaring me is a lot of the kind of hurrah, all of our students have access to technology through their school districts. So school districts have issued laptops or pads or whatever, but they're going to take them back in June. They're going to take them back when school's over. And what happens to those students, you know, one of the things we worry about in our space is what we call summer melts. So again, not to be depressing, but about 30 to 40% of the students in the United States, not college device and course students, but all students, about 30, 40% of them melt, which means they get into college, but they don't arrive in the fall, uh, Mm -hmm. which is way too high of a number. We are more concerned than ever that summer melt's going to happen. Yeah. Well, if you have access to a district laptop or a district uh, device and they take it back, A, how are we going to connect with you in the summer so you don't melt? And then what are you going to use for your university classes if they're online? So again, I don't know if we're being thoughtful enough about the temporary nature of some of the things we're doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And maybe a school system or university is ready to teach or deliver instruction online. That doesn't mean a student's ready to receive. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. The most important and most valuable resource that a university or institution in general can provide students is support. And if support isn't being given, then those dropout rates are going to be real high and they're not going to like that at all. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, to all of our higher ed friends, uh, who are listening to us, please, you know, I said this the other day to a friend who works at a major university, like empathy up, process down, right? <laughs> like, uh, you know, I know you have processes and you have to follow them, but keep the empathy up, right? The reality is that there has been so much disruption mm-hmm. uh, and people's financial situations have changed so much. And it was already hard as a first generation, low income or underrepresented student to navigate these paths even before this. Um, and it's intimidating to call university and say, I'm going to need professional judgment, which by the way, nobody would say, because that's a technical term. Um, right. Somebody's going to call and say, I need help with my financial aid. Yeah. It's intimidating to do that. Right. But we need people to feel safe doing that. And we need the people who are picking up the phone to know their processes, but to be empathetic mm-hmm. and to explain to people, you know, higher ed is full of so much jargon. We talk about RAs and TAs and section classes right. and that nobody uses this language in the real world. And again, we're already in a situation where people are intimidated. Now we've got people who are intimidated and uh, fragile and insecure because we're in a very scary pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need our universities to over-communicate if they can, um, even if they don't know the answer, just saying, like I said, I believe in you. I want you to come to our campus when, and I want you to be part of our community. Even just those sentences would make a huge difference. Exactly. I'm also wondering about the support that CAC provides maybe even past getting into college? Is there any type of support that you provide even just your freshman students and how they've been dealing with if they've had to come back home and things like that? Yeah, so I think there's two things that we've been trying to do in that space. One is uh, we partner with some great organizations that actually do that work. So Beyond 12, if you don't know Beyond 12, you should take a look. Amazing organization run by an incredible social entrepreneur 
uh, Alex Bernadotte, and they uh, work with us in a couple of markets to take our students um, and hand them off from us in high school to helping support them in college. Mm -hmm. So we have a couple of innovative relationships. We also have some relationships where we have universities that we know have great bridge programs or others that are going to hold those students um, and make sure that they succeed when they get to college. I think our universities actually need to do a better job of this. I look at some incredible work that places like Georgia State has done, especially using technology. They do mm. nudge their students and they do support their students and their graduation rates have gone way up uh, because they actually have invested, to your point, in supporting students. And so I do think there's some really bright, shiny stars in the higher ed space about when you put students first <laughs> and when you build students supports for students, they will succeed. Um, right. And when you don't do that, and they have to navigate it on their own, they won't succeed. Um, and so, you know, I think, especially now that we're in this pandemic crisis, trying to find institutions back to, you know, we talk about our advising as match and fit advising. Mm -hmm. You have to find the place that's the right academic match. Uh, you also have to find the right place that's the right social and economic financial fit. We also need to make sure our universities think about students that way too, right? Am I, am I making sure I'm supporting students? Is there the emotional, social, academic, and financial support to make sure that if I admit a student that I'm going to help them get to the finish line? Exactly. I think we've talked a lot about what is going wrong, <laughs> which there are a lot of things that are going wrong. What have you found have been some solutions that you or your organization in general have found that really worked? Students have been succeeding. So what's going right, and, and again, this is why I love them so much, uh, these 829 advisors who aren't giving up, right? They're texting every day. They're yeah. doing their chats every day. They're reaching out. They're making sure their students don't lose those opportunities they've earned. So I will say there is not enough attention in this country given to national service, mm. to public service, and to the young people who are in their you know, first job, second job. Uh, who are leaning in to make sure that others don't lose opportunities. So a huge shout out to the advisors and just the love and life that they radiate yeah. because it's transformative. And I do think, you know, this is one of the things we always struggle with or think about when we're doing technology work, right? Mm -hmm. um, transactions don't change the world. Relationships change the world. Mm -hmm. So what can you give it, uh, that's transactional or might be automated that helps somebody, remind somebody, uh, pushes somebody forward, but we can never lose the human capital, right? Mm -hmm. Because that human capital piece of it is the I believe in you piece in it. It's the inspirational piece of it. And so I think what's going right is we're doing some amazing texting. We've got yeah. this incredible partnership with Common App and AmitHub, and there's this incredible technology we're using with AmitHub's chatbot. And it's a both and, not an either or. Mm -hmm. And we still have these 24-year-old advisors who are saying, I, I believe in you. I have your story. You can do this. And it's that combination of the two it's so incredibly exciting and powerful and frankly allows me to see hope in places that you might not have seen hope otherwise. Yeah. And I love that emphasis between the partnership, the and, like you said, between data and AI and all of this technology that we've been using, but also that human connection, which honestly, personally, I believe is really the key. We can only go so far with data and technology, but like you said, if you don't have somebody there saying, I believe in you, I know you can do it. It really doesn't have the same effect. We talk all the time about our core values. And one of our core values is really around grace and humility, right? Mm -hmm. It's about listening to students. It's about being part of those communities. It's about listening to their stories. It's about telling your own story. And so I do think when we're our best, kind of our heads, our hearts, and our hands are all in alignment. Mm -hmm. And that means you use technology because that's where students are at. You use technology because it makes us more efficient and it makes yeah. us better. 
doesn't mean, but back to your point, it's a both and, it's not an either or, because the one piece that's magical to me is that empathy. And frankly, if I can use this word, it's the love, right? Mm -hmm. And all of us need to be in those situations where you feel that you're seen and you're valued and you're heard and that love becomes transformative. And then, and then making that big, brave decision to go to college doesn't feel as yeah. scary. Then that big, brave decision to think about financially to making that investment in yourself um, becomes real. We can show students all day long, and it's going to be true even after this pandemic. The best decision you can make is to go into higher education if, and I'm putting an if in this, if you go someplace where you're going to have a meaningful credential afterwards. Mm. And so it always makes me upset when I see people say, oh, it's not worth the money anymore. It's too expensive. Yeah. You know, you're going to get a degree and you're not going to get a job. If we do this well, mm-hmm. uh, it is always going to be a better uh, investment than buying a car. It's always going to be a better investment in buying a house. We, we tend to take loans out for all sorts of things as Americans. We don't seem to want to take loans out for our education. I'm not saying you should take a lot of loans out, but I'm saying you should invest in your future and in your education. Uh, it's the one thing that can never be repossessed, yeah, right? Yeah, they can't repo your degree. <laughs> It's a lot more secure than a house or a car. Yeah. Um, and if you look, who's, who is the most resilient in downturns, whether it was the economy in 2008 or what it's going through right now, the people who have the highest level of education, whether it's a college degree or a community college degree, always fare better than the people that stopped their education in high school. So we live in such a um, society driven by knowledge uh, and by knowledge-based work. Um, and we need to make sure that people have the credentials to do that kind of work. And so it's really important that we don't shy away from getting an education right now. We actually need to lean into it. Yeah, exactly. And there's really only so much that you and your organization can do. I mean, you guys are not the federal government, for example. If there were, say, three things that you could change in terms of systematic and institutional uh, rules, what would they be that would help your students a lot more? So that's an interesting question. I will tell you, this has become one of the things I think both the advisors and I are very, um, if I can use this word, feisty about. <laughs> We've got to find a way to have low-income families um, not have to continually prove that they're low-income. Mm. There's got to be a way to do this once and then not do it again. Yeah. So I think about things, and again, I'm getting a little granular here, but I think about something like the FAFSA and I think about verification and I think about all mm-hmm. the times that poor people have to be proving that they're poor, right? Whether it's for, <laughs> so whether it's for a fee waiver or it's for a application waiver or it's mm-hmm. for an SAT or ACT waiver, we keep making people prove over and over and over and over again uh, that they're low income. It's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's got to be a way to do this once and then be done with it. And I know everybody's concerned about fraud or people taking advantage of the system, but we are actually losing more talent uh, mm-hmm. by continually asking people to prove something than we ever would have to do. We can figure out a way to protect uh, so people don't abuse the system. We've got to stop making people prove that they're poor all the time. It's not okay. Definitely. Um, you know, other things that we'd love to see, I mean, again, I think we're in a situation where opportunities and talent need to be lifted up. And so I think about things like you know, this is a chance for colleges to really think about holistic admissions and how mm-hmm. are they admitting students. This is a time to think about graduation rates and are we making sure that students have access to places where they'll have a meaningful credential. I think mm-hmm. one nice thing about um, about a disruption is that it allows you to start daydreaming or hopefully actually putting into place uh, what would new systems look like if these systems are failing or these systems are disrupted. And I think 
uh, the advisors, myself, our team are constantly thinking about if we could redesign systems, how could you make it so that more students have access um, and more students get to the finish line? Um, and some of that is taking away some of the processes and some of it is uh, fast tracking ways so that stu students and families don't have some of the barriers they have right now. What do you think are some ways that people who are in higher positions of power, even listeners of this episode uh, can help out in trying to ease some of the chaos that's happening right now? I mean, there's a couple ways to do. I mean, so one, again, we just had this conversation. It's so funny with the Michigan advisors because I got a question, uh, David and I got a question just like this. Uh, and his answer was even better than mine. So I'll steal some of it, uh, <laughs> but I'll give him credit. Uh, no, we talked about micro versus macro, right? Mm. So on a micro level, a listener could do something like, make sure you are encouraging a young person in your life, right? Yeah. Make sure that there's a nephew, a niece, a neighbor, somebody that is in this process or, you know, is in this age, reach out to them and just see how they're doing mm -hmm. um, and see if they, you know, read an essay, uh, help them think about their next step, uh, you know, get on a Zoom call and go on a college tour with them, right? Mm -hmm. Like make them know that they're seen and valued and heard yeah. and that they have support through this process. That's a really micro level thing you can do now. On a macro level thing, I would say, you know, we've got an election in November. Make sure that you vote uh, and make sure that you vote for people who believe in, uh, in the things that we're talking about, right? Yeah. If you care about um, access, if you care about diversity and inclusion and equity, if you care about um, what the K through 12 system is gonna look like after this, if you care about what the higher ed system is gonna look about this, mm -hmm. if you care about how states are gonna use their dollars now that their dollars are going to be diminished, if you care about, um, you know, defunding, uh, education at the state level, uh, this is going to be a time to vote. And again, I don't know how we're going to vote in terms of what, what the, the world's going to look like in November. Um, but I think we underestimate sometimes our power to vote. And I think we underestimate in our time to, to call, right? Yeah. Call a, a, a politician, call somebody, um, you know, call a nonprofit and volunteer, call yeah. a nonprofit and make a small donation. Again, you know, we're, we're an organization that, you know, for $147, or for $147 uh, which is $150, is our cost per student, right? It's wow. not a huge number. Um, and so, you know, if you are at a point in your life where you have some extra resources, think about donating to a nonprofit right now. And yeah. you know, I'm very concerned about frontline issues right now. So whether that be access to food, access mm -hmm. to housing, access to healthcare. Um, and so I really encourage people, if they have resources to give there, I also think if you have resources uh, that can help kids think about their next step in this mm -hmm. talent piece, um, supporting an education or an access uh, program right now is also really important. Yeah, I love all of those. <laughs> there are so many ways that people can help, um, even in these chaotic and honestly scary times. I think that's a great place to stop <laughs> with a nice call to action. But we're not finished yet. We still have our rapid fire round, um, which is my favorite part of the episode. It's a list of 10 questions that we ask all our guests. Um, I think it's a lot of fun and gives us a chance to talk about things that we didn't necessarily cover in the interview and are always fun, I think. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> What's one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? So actually it's not even the last year, it's in the last two weeks. Uh, <laughs> so there's a really cool tool called Swift Student uh, that uh, amazing woman named Abigail has launched mm. uh, that helps students with their financial aid appeal. Wow. So if you are one of those people who has had a friend, a family member, or your own 
financial circumstances change. If you're a student and you're thinking about how am I going to appeal my financial aid, it's Swiss Student. Go check it out. Um, amazing tool that's come out to help students with their financial aid appeal and help navigate that crazy hard system that we just talked about. Yeah, that's Swiss Student for everybody out there. Are there any tech issues you're battling with right now? We've talked a little bit about this, but I think there's always that balance of kind of what can be automated versus mm -hmm. what can't be, right? Yeah. So what what can we do that's um, a nudge or a text or a message and can be uh, scheduled and sent out uh, versus what is uh, what has to be done by a human being? Mm -hmm. Back to I believe in you and inspiration. I think like any organization that cares about both efficiency and impact and cares both about scalability and still personalization and one-to-one -one kind of that love I was talking about, yeah. uh, that, that, uh, that piece is always playing in our heads. Mm -hmm. What's coming in the next year that has you most excited? So we're in this crazy pandemic. I'm not sure I know exactly what's coming up in the next year. Bell's <laughs> Who does? I think we're going to keep continuing to partner with folks like Common App and AdmitHub to get to more students quickly because more students need us. Uh, back to that, I do not want the class of 2020 and the class of 2021 to be the least diverse classes in decades. So I'm looking forward to tackling that challenge because we're not gonna let it happen on our watch. Uh, I also say we're you know a couple years away from our 2025 goal. So mm -hmm. College of Isencore has a goal to get a million students enrolled by 2025. Mm -hmm. We're not taking our foot off the gas pedal on that one either. We're gonna make sure we get to that goal. That's definitely exciting. Can you talk about a mistake that you made early in your career that shapes the way you do things now? Sure. So I think one of the things that we all have in our head is, um, and <laughs> I'm saying this with nothing but uh, empathy and I hope some vulnerability and I hope people meet me where I'm at. Um, don't let the haters get to you. I think, you know, <laughs> and we live in this world where there's so much technology. Um, if you read Instagram comments, if you read uh, anything on the internet comments, if you have people in your life that just don't believe, I think, yeah. You know, I, like a lot of us, sometimes had voices in my head saying, you can't do that. Mm. You can't, you can't scale this organization. You're, um, you know, I have a PhD in religious studies. That's not usually the prerequisite to run a national organization. <laughs> uh, so it was like, why are you, you know, a woman can't do this. A woman yeah. who has a PhD in religious studies can't do this. A woman uh, shouldn't be running an organization of that size, right? There's been a lot of um, moments in my life where I thought like, ooh, do I let that in? Uh, and I think the one thing I've learned is, you let in things that are important and are um, constructive and you don't let in things that aren't. Um, and so, yes, I think just uh, making sure you don't let the hate in. Um, look, at, if you are doing things well, if you are doing things that make the world a better place, if you are sound in your practice um, and you're radiating light and love, then the hate stuff needs to just melt away. Yeah, I think that's a healthy reminder, especially in these darker times. Do you think NGOs can successfully go out of business? I do, but let me put a big if with this. Okay. I think they can successfully go out to out of business if we build the systems that should have been doing the work to begin with. So, <laughs> um, so back to our counselor-student ratio that I started talking about, right? When you have a 500 to 1, or in California, it's almost a 900 to 1, yeah. a school counselor to student ratio, until those ratios are down and we give our counselors um, the opportunity to have smaller caseloads and we educate counselors and others in the schools to care about college going cultures and college going numbers, we're going to keep getting the result we're having right now. So I don't think college advice and core has to exist forever, mm. but it has to exist as long as those inequities are in the system. So a different system, maybe uh, we could, we could run ourselves out of business. Uh, I am 
optimistic that we are cracking and we're chipping away at the system, but I don't think that's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. I've asked this question a lot and I've heard a lot of different answers, but I think that one really hits the nail on the head of how I feel about it. Let's just say you had a hot tub time machine going back to the beginning of your work. What advice would you give yourself? Okay. First of all, I love that it's a hot tub time machine and not something else. So like all, all for the hot tub right now. I stay we, relaxed. All more, <laughs> we all need more self-care and love right now. So I'm all about the hot tub. That was, that's a good, a good uh, question for me. Now, I think if I could go back in time, I would say, make sure you listen, mm. make sure you listen. Uh, you know, none of us have all the answers and the best decisions we made at College Advice and Corps have come from listening to the advisors and the students in our communities. Um, somebody once told me uh, that all magic is local mm-hmm. and it was some of the best advice I ever got um, because it's about listening back to showing up. It's the way you show up and mm-hmm. it's why we're not a cookie cutter program. It's why when we think about technology, it's about um, can you do technology and personalization at the same time? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's so important. Uh, if I could go back and just constantly remind myself like, what is worth doing and what we have done well is because we were listening um, and we were putting students first. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. (laughs) What's something you think you or your organization should stop doing? So, you know, I say this uh, with a little bit of conflict. So I'm going to, again, be a little vulnerable here. We have to stop um, moving too fast but we have to keep moving, right? Mm-hmm. So I think there's, especially when you're in a pandemic, I'm sure some of you are feeling this way. I know I'm feeling this way. The regulating of yourself has kind of changed, right? So it used to be like, maybe I have a good day and then a bad day or a good week and a bad week. Now it's like a good 20 minutes and then a bad 20 minutes. <laughs> it, it, everything is going a lot faster. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, I'm so proud of this organization for pivoting uh, so quickly to technology, into virtual advising and into this online work. Um, I think I'm guilty of hustle, hustle, hustle. Um, And I do think um, one of the things you have to do is uh, make sure you also reflect. So I have no intention of slowing down or putting the, taking the foot off the gas for the 2025 goal or for being um, a complete and fierce uh, and brave advocate for more equity and diversity and inclusion in our world. Um, but I also know we need to make smart and strategic decisions. And so if you're constantly, constantly on and you don't reflect, then it's harder to make those decisions. Um, so like all of us, I think organizations are like people because they're made up of people. We all have to balance that. Um, how much can you lean um, on that gas pedal? And then when do you need to kind of look up and make sure that everybody's happy and healthy uh, and you're making strategic decisions and then you can put your foot back on that gas pedal. But those pauses and that. Uh, that reflection is incredibly important. Mm. Let's also just say you had a Harry Potter wand for the industry. What would it do? It would give us a chance to do two things. Reach every student because for some reason, technology and texting and all the things we've talked about today still doesn't reach every student. So I want to get to every student because every student matters Mm -hmm. and every life matters and every voice deserves to be heard. Um, So if there was a wand that could get us to actually every student and get to every student with empathy, that's what I need that wand to do. What's your favorite question to ask an organization or board member? My favorite question always goes back to, I think we all have stories, right? Mm -hmm. And I think part of the magic of this or part of the um, impact of our work goes to telling stories. So I like to ask board members what their stories are. I like to ask board members why they were willing to join us. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, I've been doing these Zoom calls and it's so great to hear the advisors ask, ask me and ask our team members, you know, why, why did we start this organization? Why are we doing this work? I think sometimes 
you know, this goes back to, to students and relationships. Sometimes the adults in our lives, we think they were just hatched that way, right? You think a, a teacher was always a teacher, a dean was always a dean, a doctor was always a doctor, that we just, these adults just came into our lives and they, they were kind of born that way. And I think we need to be more vulnerable and tell our stories and tell our stories about what's worked and what hasn't. But, you know, again, back to my own story, like, you know, having a PhD in religious studies is probably not the recommended path to, to run a national nonprofit. That being said, if I hadn't done that degree, if I hadn't um, had some of the experiences that I had, I wouldn't have the lens I have that allows me to do this work. Um, and so I do think uh, asking our board members or asking an organization about what is your story? And, and let's be clear, if you don't tell your story, then other people will tell it for you. And that's not okay either. Um, so you've got you've to know and you've got to own and you've got to be willing to share your story. Yeah, I love that last part. It's <laughs> the truest statement ever. How'd you get started in the social impact space? So I was the dean that oversaw undergraduate research and fellowships at the University of Virginia. This was back in 2004 and saw all these great students applying to things like Teach for America and the Peace Corps and just all this great kind of public service space. Uh, got called into a meeting with the Jack Hancock Foundation where I saw that data that we were talking about with the counselor to student ratios and the huge pipelines of talent, especially around first generation, low income and underrepresented students who are not going to college and that's not okay. And uh, even worse, the ones that were going to college and not finishing. Um, so I'm one of those people who, when I see a problem, I feel the need to see a solution because if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. <laughs> uh, and so came up with this crazy idea about putting our recent college graduates at UVA uh, into high schools to partner hmm. with counselors um, and do this work. And again, back to the haters, there were some people that were like, are you crazy? Why would we ever do this? Uh, there was a lot of like, she's got a degree that's not even close to education or counseling. Like, how is she going to do this? Yeah. The answer is you always hold hands with other people, right? Mm -hmm. I had amazing friends in admissions and financial aid that helped. Uh, we recruited those first 14 advisors. Uh, they were placed in schools in 2005. And now, you know, it's 2020 and we've helped, you know, over a half a million students go to college. So uh, for those of you who need some inspiration today, especially in this pandemic, do not let anybody shackle your dreams. Mm -hmm. um, when you want something, you got to be great, brave and go for it. Mm. What's a piece of advice your parents gave you that you did or didn't follow? So my father is a first gen low income uh, graduate. He grew up in Detroit and by luck and uh, a lot of blessing and some great um, love uh, ended up getting a college degree, which changed his life, which changed mm -hmm. my life, which changed my sibling. I mean, that's the great thing about education, right? Um, is that it changes a family's life forevermore yep. uh, and the generations to come. He told me to follow my heart and it's the best advice I've ever gotten. Um, I think my father and then the other person, just to give a shout out, if anybody has um, not seen it, you should go see her sometime. Uh, she's on YouTube uh, on a TED talk, Melody Hobson. Hmm. Melody taught me to be brave. So uh, I always have my dad in my head saying, follow your heart and Melody telling me to be brave. So whether it's making a fundraising ask or uh, trying to figure out a technology, whatever it is, the two of them are in my head saying, follow your heart and be brave. Hmm. Last, but honestly, my favorite question of the rapid fire is, what advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? This may come from my time um, at the University of Virginia because there's so much pressure, I think, that college graduates feel. So two things. Uh, one is don't feel the need that you have to start an organization yourself. Mm. Uh, the best thing that you can do is join an organization that you're passionate about and then learn. Mm. So learn from the leaders there, learn from the, your colleagues there, learn from your friends there. But there is so much, I think when you're 
in college, there's this need to start something, right? Everybody starts a club or starts with this or starts that, and then you get out and think you're going to start a nonprofit. Um, the best way to start a nonprofit is not to start it when you're in your 20s, but to start it when you're later after you've learned. And look at all in this. Like I, again, history major, uh, PhD in religious studies, not exactly spending a lot of time learning how to do budgets, not spending a lot of time learning how to um, think about scale and impact, right? And so. I think cutting your teeth uh, an organization and learning, even if you never want to be a CFO, learning the, about the budget, even if you never want to be a chief technology officer, learning how technology works, even if you never want to be an HR, learning about culture uh, and about how to take care of people. Those are really important muscles to build if you want to do social impact work or nonprofit work. And so go to an amazing organization and learn those things. Mm-hmm. And then if you still need to found something, go do it yeah. and be brave, like I was saying before. But Build the muscle first by getting into the field and working for an organization where you will get that muscle. I also think, and I'll steal this again, I'm giving credit to people, I promise, uh, we, but we just got that same question in that Michigan call and David said, don't sweat the timeline. And that's another thing. Mm-hmm. Don't sweat the timeline. I think you've got time. Um, and when you're in your 20s, there's, again, I knew this myself, pressure cooker, pressure cooker. I'm supposed to be this. I'm supposed to be that. I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to have found the perfect partner. I'm supposed to live in the perfect, you know, house. I'm supposed to have the perfect, whatever. Uh, just stop swaying the timeline um, and and live live your day to as 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 um, fully as yourself today. Um, and stop stop making sure that that clock is always ticking. Uh, that's not that's not always useful. Yeah, I love that advice. I always talk about the quarter life crisis that all new grads have. And it's so true. Really don't sweat the timeline. Thank you so much, Nicole, for a lovely interview. Uh, where can people find you? So people can find me a couple places. Uh, on the web, our website is at advisingcore.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Dr. N, as in Nicole Hurd, H-U-R-D. Um, I'm on Instagram as at Dr. Hurd. And then the Advising Core is both on Twitter and on Instagram as at Advising Core. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us.